This week on the Backtable Podcast. When we look at the Office of Education, our job is to provide knowledge. For example, every year at the AUA, there's what, five or six hands-on courses, right? And, and our job is to provide an educational framework so that somebody can either learn how to do it or maybe if they want to hone their skills, they can learn some of the tricks of the trade. I think that there's a big component from when that person walks out of that course before they start regularly doing that in their own hospital setting, whether that's a resident trainee or someone in practice, there has to be some way for them to better hone their skills so that they are a safe, competent person. This is where I think simulation comes in. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Jay Raman from Penn State Hershey Medical Center, where he is the chair of urology and also the chair of education at the AUA. Jay, how's it going today? Aditya, first of all, thank you so much uh, for having me. Great to be here. Great to see you uh, again. And and obviously, we go back a long way. So it's uh, it's always my pleasure to be able to connect with you. Absolutely looking forward to this one. And, you know, thinking about education and mentorship and the early days, um, you know, I had a pretty transformative year at UT Southwestern where Jay was a MIS fellow with uh, Jeff Cadetu and Peggy Pearl and Jay and Kareem Bensal and myself. We really had a good thing going and it was super fun and it certainly ignited a passion for academic urology. So it's been a, you know, a true pleasure to learn from you, to follow your career and you know, today to pick your brain on, on what education looks like in the 21st century. So maybe before we jump into it, Jay, think back to your residency days. What was your kind of curriculum like? What were you doing to kind of make sure that you were up on things and you know, showed up ready to go prepared? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question that you ask because I do think it lends the framework of how we used to learn and how I learned and probably you learned and how that's so different than I think how our trainees learn now and how our audiences learn now. You know, I think the reality is most of us were heavily invested in text. You know, you you would read Campbell's Urology, for example, or Update Series. It was very sort of rigorous in the text Go to the OR, you'd maybe look at Hinman's, um, Netter's, Surgical Atlas. But I think it was very paper-based. And that was sort of the format. That was the educational curriculum was really readings for the week, print text on how you're going to learn and learn stuff in the OR. And that was the norm, uh, honestly. And I don't think any of us thought otherwise of it. But I think digital media and video and Frankly, the pandemic has, has changed a lot of that over the last three years, but probably it's only pushed us to do what we probably should have been doing even before that. Yeah, it sounds very, very similar. You know, we had three conferences. We had pre-op where you'd study film and, you know, run through the history and physical journal club. And many times that was basically covering the journal of urology. You know, you could kind of do that at a monthly basis and and even from, you know, kind of a academic scientific output perspective, things seemed a lot more digestible then. You know, it was two or three kind of premier urology journals. Every now and again, every six months or so, something comes out in the New England Journal or JAMA and everybody knew about it as a big deal. 
But now, I mean, you know, there's obviously so much of this change. I mean, the volume of information, the volume of high quality information, the numbers of journals that are out there, just the multiple media sources to get information. It's it's overwhelming. And, you know, we'll, we'll maybe dig into these a bit more as we kind of go through. Um, and then, of course, pandemic, you know, with the shift towards virtual lending. But to start, how about just handling the volume of information? How do you kind of figure out how to use your time to get information that's useful? And, and maybe we could do this for residents and fellows, kind of people in education, and then for people, of course, that are in practice. Any kind of insights here? Yeah, I think you you raise a great question, which is we now have access through various different means of, of voluminous amounts of information, right? So the days where you would subscribe to one or two or three print journals, and then as you alluded to, then maybe you get a smattering of other stuff. Uh, if it was, you know, a Sentinel article in one of these journals that we don't normally subscribe to. And now with digital access, you have constant access to all kinds of print quality or digital quality material, videos. There's no shortage of videos. And I think the challenge here, it sort of dovetails on your question, is I think we have a lot of quantity. One of my big concerns is quality. So when you go to YouTube, for example, and you go type in, let's say, radical prostatectomy, you could find 5,000 videos on radical prostatectomy. And I do question a lot of times some of these, what is the quality of the video? What is the goal of the video? Is it promotional or is it educational, right? Is it promotional? Somebody's putting it out there because they're branding themselves or is it truly educational? And when you sort of ask the question of residents, trainees, then you go on to those in practice. I think one of the things I've learned a little bit over the last year and a half or two years is how do you do a better job of looking at what information we have, but then trying to put some measure of quality control on what comes in and gets filtered in? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just because it's out there and even if it's in a semi-reputable source, I don't know that we, you know, we can kind of take it for gospel necessarily. Great New York Times article. I don't remember where it was, but it looked at YouTube publications on prostate cancer and found very clearly that the quality of publications was rather poor and the quality of the videos was rather poor and the scientific merit was rather poor. And so I think when I look at going back to your original question, you know, how do you take all this volume of information and, and how do you translate that, for example, to residents? I think they do need a core foundation of knowledge. And I think a lot of that has to be much more bread and butter. And that's not to say that journal articles aren't bread and butter, but journal articles are in the journals because they're novel and new findings. So I do think that a lot of residency training, for example, needs a little bit more of a standardized curriculum of what the nuts and bolts and what do they need to do. And I think that that can't just simply be text. I think it has to be integrated with, okay, here's the concept. Here's a video illustrating the concept. Here's a journal article that's related. Here's a Sentinel journal article that brought us these concepts. And I think to me, that is the crux of how resident education has to work. It cannot just be A, B, or C. It has to be a platform where you can access A, B, and C all at the same time, because that's how we learn. We don't learn just by simply watching a video or reading something. We, we learn by doing both. 
You know, it's funny, and I'm nearly certain this was you when I was a medical student, and I asked you a very similar question, like, hey, you know, where do I kind of start? And you said, I start with chapters, and then you could read a review article to really kind of dig into your specific area a bit further, and then read a couple of papers. And I actually think that there's similarities here. You know, you want to have a broad understanding, the nuts and bolts, if you will, and maybe that's, you know, the core curriculum, which I think does a good job. I think I'm also hearing that, you know, taking advantage of multiple media formats, text, PowerPoint, audio, video, you know, and we haven't even gotten to the interactive parts of it is beneficial. And I think we're also appreciating that people don't learn the same, you know, adult learners versus younger learners. There's different ways. And then even among adults, there's more and less effective media do you have any kind of thoughts or comments on that, Jay? With regards to different types of media and, and different sort of stages or phases of learners? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, look, you know, we all have a smartphone. And the reality is, if you look at, if you want to call them, I mean, I hate the term, but if you want to look at millennial learners, right? Millennial learners like to get information in bits and pieces, small amounts. They're very tech savvy. They like to use apps. You know, if you think about, for example, you know, one of the AUA things, products that we put out, the SASP app. Well, when I used to do the SASP to prepare for the in-service, I would take that 150 question book and I would go through all 150 questions. Nobody likes to learn that way now. You do it in bits and pieces, three questions, five questions. You like to be able to search on what areas you don't know a lot about rather than doing 150 questions. Maybe you don't know pediatric urology very well. So I think our current learners, they're really tech savvy. They expect that how they can acquire information is going to be using these technological interfaces. And I think the simple reality is attention span is generally lower now. And I, I know I'm generalizing when I say that, but I think the days when people right out of the gate would read for 45 minutes to an hour to get baseline rudimentary understanding of things, I think that time is gone. And I'm not meaning to say that there isn't value, because I do think on, say, Campbell's or higher-end textbooks. But I would be the first to say, I think that's if you have an interest, if you want to learn more, if you have a, a thought of, hey, I, I need more than just what the foundational elements of, say, core curriculum or whatnot, sure, then there's a lot of value. Because I would tell you, look, the hematuria section on the AUA core curriculum doesn't cover, for example, the section that or the chapter I wrote in Campbell. So I think they're complementary, but we have to realize that our current learners now use digital. And if we don't teach using digital interfaces, we're missing the boat. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. And certainly it's been my experience as well. One of the things that I think is really nice from the AUA is that they're, you know, well, maybe we'll just talk about the core curriculum. It seems like it's level the playing field in terms of where you are, you know, what the bandwidth of the faculty may be, and actually provides an opportunity for the motivated trainee to kind of take matters into their own hands. And I'll give you an example. You know, just this past week, I gave the lecture on a, adrenal masses. So what I did is I asked the residents to listen to a podcast that I did with Alex Kudakov on adrenal masses somewhere in the week prior to that. Then I basically downloaded the AUA core curriculum and shared that lecture and hopefully it was contextual. 
in my residency, I probably would have spent two hours reading through adrenal physiology, you know, steroid synthesis, you know, sex androgens and eyes glazed at washouts and this and that. And it seemed like it was better than what I did, you know, maybe a decade or so ago. But it doesn't matter if you're at premier urology institution or you're at brand new urology division. Those experiences are available to anybody. And to me, that's fantastic. You know, the availability of these resources kind of curated at AUA kind of organizational level. Do you think that these are being perceived like such? Yeah. So I think you hit a few really good points. And, you know, I'll take my AUA hat off here. And I would tell you, based on what you just described to me, this is how education, I think, should happen. And it's as follows. You have a lot of really smart, savvy people across the country. And whether it's through podcasts or I give huge credit, for example, to Lindsay Hampson and the COVID lecture series out of UCSF, Gina Badalato, the Empire series out of New York. And there are a number of different ones. And I, I know Lindsay and Gina, so I'm citing those too. But what do I think is great about this? First of all, it doesn't matter where in the country you live. As a trainee, you can hear a preeminent lecture from an Alex Kudakov, for example, on adrenal pathology. And what that does is, number one, is you get the best experts in the field theoretically lecturing to residents or trainees or anyone, frankly, on what's the bread and butter. So that's your foundational elements. And I would be the first to say that if you have an Alex Kudakov talking about adrenal, do I really need to, at my own home institution, have another didactic lecture on adrenal? I would say probably not. But where do I think the value is? Is you talked about that session that you had with your residents. I would say the pre-work, the pre-reading is you listen to Kudakov's lecture on adrenal, and then you come to Aditya's talk, and you come to Aditya, now you have case example. You have, all right, we're going to look at the CT, we're going to look at laboratory studies, and make those sessions actually interactive. And why did you think this was an adenoma versus a carcinoma? How do you actually apply the whole concept of washout? Okay, we read about it, but how does that actually apply to a clinical case? And to me, that's the future is that people all coming somewhere to simply listen to somebody talking for 45 minutes. Well, I could do that at home. I could do that in the comfort of wherever I'm sitting. I could do that on the treadmill or whatever. But I think when we actually meet in person, it needs to be something that's interactive, something that we're doing together, something where someone walks away and says, okay, now I actually understand how to apply this stuff, as opposed to simply passively acquiring information. Totally. And, you know, I actually was able to track down our adrenal SASB questions and every five to 10 slides or so kind of pop one in there. But I think this idea of, you know, passive learning versus active learning is, is kind of what you're touching on. And it's kind of true for all of us. I mean... I historically haven't been trained in cryoablation, scrubbed in like a resident, did the case with one of my partners yesterday, and it was way more educational than the hours of modules and so forth, which were actually amazing. I mean, the the modules, you know, first I was like, oh my gosh, where am I going to find 20 hours to review cryoablation? And I was shocked. They were very, very good to review the anatomy and so forth. So yeah, I think that you're you're right on, you know, that it allows us to standardize. It allows us from kind of the top down, AUA, ABU, make sure that there is ultimately a digestible, finite amount of information. Very practically, if you're familiar with this and you understand it, you know, guidelines, core curriculum that 
when things like your ABU, written boards and oral boards come across, you don't feel that panic anxiety of, have I covered everything? You know, I also think one of the things I would tell you is, it's really interesting. I interviewed to be the chair of education for the AUA in November of 2019. And I would be the first to tell you that the things that I talked about in November of 2019 is vastly different than it is now. And and honestly, when I took that job or when I was interviewing for that job, it was a well-oiled machine that worked in that setting. And, you know, I said to myself, well, I just need to make sure I don't screw this up, right? You know, it's working. People come to the meeting, great attendance, great feedback. And now we go a few years later and here's the reality, Aditya. You don't need 15,000 people or 10,000 people to fly to some location to simply listen to people talk for an hour or two hours or three hours. There's no value. I think people have sort of become more savvy that, look, you can get CME credit anywhere, whether it's in your home. You don't have to go to a meeting to get CME credit. So there really needs to be a more thoughtful way of Look, and this is really true for like those that are in practice. Let's just take the residents out of it. Let's take the trainees out of the equation. If you're in practice and you're a practicing urologist, you need to be able to get something out of flying to New Orleans or Chicago or San Diego or pick whatever city that's worth you spending three or four days out of your time that you're going to acquire that you couldn't acquire just sitting at home. And one of the interesting things is, and it's a funny discussion I have sometimes, when we look at courses, you know, we offer courses. I think you've given courses at the AUA. I have now sort of said, look, the courses, if you're going to propose a course at the annual meeting, you have to make it interactive. You have to have a different format than what we are doing presently. And it's interesting. Sometimes when I don't accept a course, I get an email saying, you know, I've had a course and I submitted it and it's been accepted for the last 10 years and I haven't changed it. And I said, exactly. You've had a course and you've submitted for the last 10 years and you haven't changed it. And I think that onus is on us now as educators to realize that when people come to meetings and come to these courses, that we have to offer more than simply having a 45-minute dialogue on what's out there. It has to engage people there. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly when you took on that, that sounds like it was a pretty interesting timing. You know, you signed up to be the figurehead and, and keep things afloat and, you know, maybe incrementally improve. And then, you know, education kind of gets flipped on its head. So first things first, let's just maybe talk about the value of like getting together. You know, what are you guys doing in, in Hershey right now? Your grand rounds, Wednesday, you know, conferences and so forth. Are they hybrid, in-person, virtual? You know, you're the chair. What do, what do you think is the best format? It's interesting. I think it actually varies a great deal. So I would tell you, for example, at our program, we have a lot of faculty with young families. So we do morning conferences and we only do morning conference. And it's mostly because at the end of the day, four or five o'clock, people want to go home and they want to, you know, see their kids and their families and stuff like that. And so we actually still do all virtual because, you know, our conferences are typically 6.30 till 7.15 in the morning, several days a week. And I think people would much rather, for example, if they have an academic or administrative day or they have other obligations, they are more likely to join and participate if they could do that from wherever they're doing that versus having to drive in to Hershey Medical Center, park your car, walk to the conference room and whatnot. 
I don't think that's universal. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations and we might be, and I'd love to hear what's going on at UCSD, but we have continued to go with virtual mostly because the faculty want to do virtual, but that may not be universal. What's it like at UCSD? Yeah, so we're largely virtual. The residents typically get together in the conference room. That's historically been the designated spot. A smattering of faculty will sometimes show up. Uniformly, the residents love it when the faculty show up. But we're thinking about at least, um, you know, once per month, M&M, for instance, making that not mandatory in person. And, you know, I've kind of reflected on this. I'm, I'm newer here. It's all been virtual. I don't spend a lot of time physically in the same space with my partners. And I think there's, you know, some value in that, getting to know each other and whatnot. Yeah, I don't know what the what the right answer is. I mean, sometimes if, if I've got a meeting and I can take it from home and see my kids in the morning, that's pretty nice. And I never did that for my previous five years of my career. But my sense is, without being an expert on it, there's some value in in-person meetings at some, you know, regularity. And, you know, coming out of the AUA first in-person meeting, it was really nice to see people to kind of engage in, in what's going on, what's to say to things. Because if it is virtual, then it is another Zoom meeting, another this. And just like, I mean, there's so much print content, emails, texts, social media, blah, blah, blah. I feel like without something to kind of punctuate it, it's easy to be like, yeah, that happened and I'm beyond it. Look, I, I think you're spot on. So, you know, I think there's two things. It's interesting. If, what, what do you do at your local level? So UCSD, Hershey. And it's interesting. I sort of talked to you about how our conferences are run virtually, but we're all in the same office complex. So the social elements of seeing people, which I think is critical, we still get those even if our conferences or our meetings are sort of virtual. I do think, and I'm a big believer, that virtual only meeting formats, when you get to larger, you know, or whether it's the AUA, the SUO, the EAU, look, there is a big social component of meetings that cannot be captured on Zoom. And, you know, Zoom format or any digital format, I'm saying Zoom, but it could be any digital format. Look, there's a finite beginning and there's a finite end. And I would say sometimes the best conversations you have at an annual meeting, the best discussion points, the best research ideas, they don't occur sometimes in the sessions. They occur at the back of the room when you see somebody. They occur when you're getting coffee or you get drinks or dinner. And if you just look at our community, which I think is, you know, a really close knit community, I mean, here, you know, look at this, like we're doing this, you know, 15, 16 years after we first met in Dallas. And, and that's the kind of community that you have in urology is that people know each other, people like each other. I just don't think that we can satisfy what we want as not even urologists, but professionals simply by just looking at the nuts and bolts of what needs to be accomplished. Because you can do that on Zoom, but you miss everything else beyond that. I was just in a meeting last week or two weeks ago, and it was the Friday was the educational programming portion of it. Thursday evening was the dip. And I sat next to somebody I hadn't talked to in two or three years because I just hadn't seen them. And we had a wide ranging discussion, talked about different things. We only had a Zoom format or we only had a, a digital format. That conversation would never would have occurred. And I bet you more than a few people would say the same thing, that the social elements of being able to meet in person are invaluable. I think the onus is on people like you and I to figure out how to make 
the in-person component as valuable as possible, right? It can't just simply be social. There has to be sort of the complementary part for that. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that the kind of slogan for our podcast is the meeting after the meeting, where you're sitting with your friends, your colleagues, and you're kind of talking about, you know, what do you do in these scenarios? What do you think about this? How are you approaching educational infrastructure and so forth? And and I think that it is those organic conversations, maybe with people that you know well or or that you get introduced to that that can be, you know, just massive from a clinical research education perspective. And I think it goes into what you're talking about. You know, it's got to be interactive, genuinely interactive. And, you know, that idea of like passive lectures, you know, we see so much more polling, audience participation, things like that, that, you know, case-based presentations that kind of keep you engaged. So, you know, not to kind of, this is not a tidy up a bowl summary, but it sounds like, you know, maybe for the residents, fellows, that multimedia preparation on one's own time, audio, visual, et cetera, plus interactive, active learning with a professor, teacher, mentor is probably going to be a good starting point. And certainly the core of that is available through the AUA core curriculum. Does that sound like a decent starting point? I mean, of course, there's a deeper dive, you know, if you're interested in academics and so forth. But is that a reasonable starting point for somebody thinking about just how to get through their residency, learn the nuts and bolts, and make sure they're a good, safe urologist? Yeah, I, I think you, you summarized it really well. I mean, I think that taking advantage, and I would say even for trainees, but those in practice, right? I mean, you know, we, we want to make sure that, you know, the day you walk out of residency shouldn't be the day that you stop learning. And we want to make sure, as does the ABU, of course, that you continue to have baseline proficiency of knowledge, understanding of the field, you're up to date on the guidelines because Lord knows things change over time. So I really do believe that to your point, what is your foundational elements are things like, for example, maybe guidelines, whether that be from the AUA or the EAU, core curriculum, which is from the AUA or other sources, but you have a baseline foundation of knowledge that I think Honestly, the onus is on people to be able to acquire that knowledge on their own. And, you know, I run, I like to run, I run seven days a week. I listen to things when I run. I listen to podcasts, I listen to all kinds of stuff. And to me, that's my investment in myself to get that baseline knowledge base of things. And then to the point you made, I think when we are actually in these settings where we're interacting, whether it's with a professor, whether it's with a guest lecturer, that's where I think that it should be more applications-based, that you should be taking some of that foundational knowledge and trying to apply it. So, you know, to the point that you said, for example, when we have guidelines courses, the guidelines courses are all now case-based, right? Anybody can go read 27 guidelines statements, but how in the world do you apply that into practice? You do it through a different format when you're there. And, you know, whether you call that flipped classroom or, you know, there's a variety of different words for it. But, you know, this is not new, Aditya. I mean, you know, 1999, there's a great JAMA article that basically said, if you look at continuing medical education, simply giving information out in settings actually does not improve knowledge base. It has to be an interactive sort of format. And I think now, even though this has been there since 1999, 
we're now understanding more and more that we have all these tools to get people this baseline level of knowledge and that's the medium to do so. Yeah, you kind of struck a chord on multiple levels. So I was actually thinking about my style of parenting, which I think probably translates a bit into my style of education. And it's not really congratulations, you did this case well, or congratulations, you got an A. It's congratulations, you figured out how to do this to kind of get where you're going. And I think, not to put words in your mouth, that really a part of our job is to help the trainees become sufficient and proficient in identifying information, figuring out solutions to problems, and figuring out ways to allow for their continual growth in education. You know, it's not, congrats, you can tell me the five absolute indications for intervention in a man with BPH. It's, congratulations, you found a good source, you've managed to kind of keep up and run with it. And, you know, I think that's really the goal. You know, it's, it's, it's a small period, you know, five, six years or so in a trainee's life that they're a resident or a fellow, and then they go on and it, and it's up to them. And just prioritizing that, encouraging that type of behavior is critical. And, and that's really what's lifelong, right? Because, for example, the five indications or six indications for surgical intervention for BPH in 2022 may be different than what they are in 2028, okay? But, so simply teaching people, oh, you need to know the five causes of this or the five treatments for this or the six treatments for this, you're basically teaching truisms that are true at that single point in time. I think teaching a learned behavior of how do you go acquire information, that is actually much more sustainable, right? Because then in 2028, if there's new information out there, journal articles, sentinel articles, procedures, if somebody actually is in the mindset of how to actually go acquire this information, even if that truism changes six or seven years from now, not somebody just regurgitating a new set of six indications for X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I mean, clearly there's technology, you know, since I graduated, you know, I used to do TERPs and like KTP prostatectomy. Now there's aquablation and resume and Eurolift. And, you know, I don't want to be that guy that's antiquated in a little bit of time, but maybe you could talk a bit about the role of simulation in education. Are you guys doing it? Is this prioritized? Is it sold or oversold? What are your thoughts on, um, on but maybe both of those combined? Keeping yeah. up with technology and then simulation. So to me, I, I really do believe that, and, and it's interesting, I was on a call every few weeks, we have an AUA planning meeting call and we brainstorm ideas. I think one of the key things from a quality and safety perspective, and this is my editorial comment, not only for trainees, but those in practice, is I do believe that there needs to be an avenue to practice and hone skills in a safe environment where you're not necessarily doing it on a patient. And so, you know, one of the comments I would make, for example, is when we look at the Office of Education, so our job is to provide knowledge, okay? So, for example, every year at the AUA, there's, what, five or six hands-on courses, right? Hands-on course on, you know, Resume, for example, or any kind of ablative therapy for the prostate, there's stuff on focal therapy, there's stuff on percutaneous access for kidney stones, just pick a variety of different procedures. And our job is to provide an educational framework so that somebody can either learn how to do it or maybe if they want to hone their skills, they can learn some of the tricks of the trade. My editorial comment, and, and this is just me speaking out loud, is 
I think that there's a big component from when that person walks out of that course before they start regularly doing that in their own hospital setting, whether that's a resident trainee or someone in practice, there has to be some way for them to better hone their skills so that they are a safe, competent person. And this is where I think simulation comes in. And one of the the persons that I think is really, really smart and is really pushing the envelope with this is Ahmed Ghazi, who's at Rochester. And I've had the pleasure of working with him in my setting now because Ahmed's a firm believer in simulation. And obviously, they have resources at Rochester maybe that the rest of the world doesn't have. But his idea and his mentality of how can we create simulation environments so that people can become more proficient, which I think at the end of the day makes you a safer and more competent surgeon. Yeah, that opens up a whole can of worms. You know, we've all done peer references for colleagues and partners and uniformly outstanding, agree, no no reservations and so forth. But, you know, maybe as a, as a part of the ABU certification, it'll be required or requested that you send in a couple of videos of your cases or complication profiles. But it's kind of interesting how I've kind of come full circle on this. You know, as a trainee, I was thinking, well, we, we do such a high volume that there's really very little role for simulation. And, you know, by all means that I go into the robotic labs and do peg transfers and all those kinds of fun things and, you know, devoted to it. But I think really with, for better, the kind of way education and autonomy has evolved with the newer technologies that are more and more sophisticated, that you're absolutely right. You know, having those hands-on courses and then having an opportunity to see how it goes in your in your own hands prior to really providing that service for patients is got to be the safest and, and most appropriate way to do it. And I've got to say, you know, I think we're really just at the beginning of it. You know, we, we talked a little bit about podcasts and videos and so forth, you know, actually through Backtable, a couple of companies have reached out and, you know, send you an Oculus headset in the mail and you're putting on this 3D platform and you're virtually in somebody's OR. And again, I think this is a really amazing thing to at least partially level the training field. You know, maybe you're not at a high volume RPLND center, but you can virtually participate in 25 RPLNDs at Indiana Memorial and spend a few months there or whole lap. I mean, you name it, you know, there, there's so many opportunities, I think, to expand and augment what's kind of currently being done. So, so I think, you know, you said a few things that I think are spot on. I think that this advent of VR type technology is really going to actually make elements of simulation more feasible. So I think the biggest challenge with simulation is it's sort of like the old computers, right? When you had these large key systems and you had to be in a certain sim lab and you had to have all of this large scale equipment, that's not a scalable sort of operation there. Okay, maybe you could have it at Southwestern Dallas. Maybe you could have it at this place or that place. If you look at across the country, especially if you get into training environments outside of an academic medical center, how are you going to actually have that be scalable? And, and this is where I really do think things like Oculus or any other kind of VR technology does bridge that gap of how do you get simulation so that the average person, trainee or urologist, can actually participate in a simulation environment that is feasible and reasonable? I think the second point that you made, and um, I've talked to Brant Thrasher at the ABU and then Gary Lamack, and I think ABU is really on cue with this. And I think that they're definitely evolving towards that, which is that the historical way that 
we all took our boards was it was case-based, right? You would talk through cases and you would get scenarios and you would talk through. And I think that more and more there, there's a real, a realization that that may not totally capture how you are as a practicing urologist. It's a, it's a good tool as our case logs and complications logs. But I think that there are ways that we can start to assess, I don't know, how are you as a doctor, you, you know, and, and how are you performing? And can you do something as simple as counseling patients? Or if you have more sophisticated VR technology, can you sort of do simple rudimentary procedures, right? Things that every urologist should hopefully be able to do. And I'm not talking about the post-chemo RPLND or the advanced kidney cancer or the vesicovaginal fistula. I'm talking about bread and butter urology that 80% of people who are not specialists will see in their office. I actually do think that the board is moving that. It'll take some time, but I think they're moving that way. And, and again, I think it's a lot of the similar themes, which is it's easier to integrate this into certification when technology improves and therefore what you have available to sort of query these skills is not something that you have to apply to some massive sim center and and somehow accomplish it there. Yeah, and it's it's great to hear that there hasn't been any stagnation and and that the envelopes are being pushed. And I mean, not to get too futuristic, even though I don't think it's that far off. I mean, you can imagine maybe not too far off in the future that you come in as a relatively junior trainee you participate in a variety of skill sets. You have some AI algorithm that's ultimately able to say whether you're going to be a good, great, or medium surgeon. And that maybe helps direct your career. You know, maybe even thinking about the German model of like clinical and operative urologist. I mean, it's, you know, it's something maybe down the line, but what do you think? You know, what do you think about objective assessment of a surgeon's kind of intuitive skills? So I, I think this is a great question. It's, it's really interesting. Um, so I have this project I'm working on with, with a lot of different residency programs around the country. And Eric Wallen, who's the head of the urology RRC, and I have talked about this. And, and my idea and thought on this, and I, I think it sort of dovetailed with exactly what you're saying, is what I call the arc of residency training. Okay, the arc of residency training. What I mean by that is the current paradigm of how we train urology residents is every year you start doing more complex cases and the chiefs are always doing, you know, the quote unquote, the big wax, right? Okay, but they go into practice and 80% of them are not doing big wax, right? If you look at the urologic oncology data, the number of people doing more than 10 cystectomies a year is astronomically small. But if you look at the end of residency training, most chief residents are doing, it's a lot of cancer because those are the bigger surgeries. And there's a big component of me that has said that, should we earlier in training, and, and final point I'd make is, but we have a shortage of urologists across the country, right? So we need urologists, but not every urologist needs to be trained, in my opinion, with the same arc during residency. So what do I mean by that? I don't at all have any questions, concerns, or qualms with having minimums, because I think that that demonstrates proficiency. But I do think that having some sort of barometer during your training, first year, third year, hopefully by third year, that gives you a sense of, hey, is this person really a true gifted surgeon that has an interest in doing oncology and therefore craft the next two years of their training that dovetails into that career path versus somebody who 
may be a very gifted doctor, but just doesn't like doing some of these bigger operations, right? They feel uncomfortable. They're not going to do it in practice. And why in the world would we have them spend the majority of their final year in training do things that they're never going to do in practice? Should we expose them to that early, but then change their arc a little bit so it more aligns with their practice? And and I do think that there's a lot of merit to this. And, and I've thought about this more and more as I've looked at even our own trainees and I look at what do they do as chief residents? What are they doing in practice? And the two do not align in many cases. And I really do wonder to myself, should we be rethinking this so that we better prepare? And I think that helps us from a workforce point of view. I think that we need a lot of general urologists. And rather than having folks upstream, we should probably try to change how we educate during training so that we have the maximal complement there. Does that make sense? hundred percent. I think we've actually seen examples of it. You know, typically, historically, urology programs were six years. Many times that was two years of general surgery. When I was an intern, it was 11 months of general surgery, one month of urology. My sense is that the bulk of that first year is actually now urology, with the idea being that, you know, maybe it doesn't make a ton of sense to do things. I mean, of course, there's value in seeing how other people do things. But, you know, we are specializing a little bit earlier, if you will. And I think the whole idea of treating each person as an individual versus all trainees as a congregate is really what you're getting at. And absolutely, I mean, you know, risk tolerance, ability to kind of handle a complication. I think these are things that we kind of know about ourselves fairly early on and, you know, beating down a bunch of prostates and partials and cystectomies in somebody that wants to go do infertility, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's it. That's exactly it. And I think that, you know, I think some of the work that needs to be done is better, I think, refining some of that to, to your point exactly, which is, I think that's, that's, you know, personal, you know, we, we talk about personalized care for patients, right? That there are broad guidelines, right? But everybody doesn't get the same treatment. It's within the construct of what might be in guidelines. Well, I would say the same for training is that there are broad guidelines of what would make you a proficient trainee who's completed a urology residency. But everybody has that exact same cadence of how they were exposed to stuff. And I think it's personalized. Yeah, well, this this is great. And, you know, it's always refreshing. You know, I've, I've been involved in a, a couple of emails and some ideas among people that are engaging some non-traditional educational formats. And it's just so nice to see that people are just kind of continually pushing the envelope, whether that's virtual training, whether that's simulation, I mean, whether that's trainee wellness. You know, Phil Pierazio has an excellent podcast, in my opinion, Operate with Zen, that really focuses on, you know, more of a holistic approach. And there's so many amazing resources out there. And I just love it. You know, Rena Malik has an amazing YouTube channel that's gained a lot of traction. And and people are just, I think, thinking about ways to educate people, get content out there, ideally good content. And it absolutely sounds like kind of at the organizational, institutional level that's taking place both at the ABU and AUA. And, you know, as I was also kind of thinking about this lecture, you know, of course, there's the medicine and the surgery, you know, the guidelines, the curriculum. But it also seems like there's more than that that's very, very intertwined with us as doctors and urologists. I mean, social justice, equity, parity, 
racism. I mean, you know, we're, we're in a pretty volatile situation. How does the AUA and so forth integrate that educational bit into, um, for all of us? I mean, forget just trainees, for all of us. That's a great question. So, you know, we always think about education historically as being clinical content. Right. I mean, that, that has historically been where education has is, does somebody have the clinical knowledge, clinical content and whatnot? And I think we now know that there are more and more elements. You alluded to some of them, whether it's sociodemographic, ethnic race. I think there's also a lot in the whole realm of the business of urology. I mean, okay. Maybe that's less sometimes an issue if you're an employed academic urologist, but that's a very central issue if you're in a large group practice or you're hospital employed through various different mechanisms. And, you know, we all have, for example, more time pressure, more documentation, more time pressures. And even though we have the clinical content, you know, how do, how do you manage and juggle all of these? So I would say a few things. I think number one is I think we're only at the tip of the iceberg of some of these other elements of education. And obviously, there's been a big push for improving diversity, equity, inclusion, their DEI task force from the AUA. And some of that has trickled down to some novel educational programming that we have put together just with better understanding, you know, financial vulnerable populations, ethnically vulnerable populations, et cetera. You know, I think one of the things that we're just launching last year going to this year, which I think I've learned a lot about is we have a whole new within education business of urology group and um, or inst I guess it's called an institute is really the, the formal name for it. And you talked about Rena Malik. I think Rena's giving a talk um, on, you know, business hacks for a urologist, for example, or time hacks and leveraging social media. I feel like I saw Angie Smith's name on something about work-life balance. But I think that as a group, we are now becoming far more understanding that education is not just clinical education. There's a lot of social determinants. There's a lot of being good stewards of the environment and, and waste with regards to medical supply. There's a lot of elements of business. And I think we're slowly trying to expand that sphere because people want that information, right? I think the days when you walked into work, you saw 40 patients and all you thought about was clinical urology and you walked out the door, that time doesn't exist anymore. And I think we have to adapt to make sure that we're providing this as an educational framework. Yeah. And I, and I know that this is tricky, you know, with these topics. I mean, abortion, let's just say people have different opinions as they should. And, you know, that's certainly their right. But, you know, one of the things that you alluded to in environmental considerations. I'm actually able to participate in our greening the OR committees. And it's little things. You walk in, you're like, why are there six gowns and a hundred gloves open? Or, you know, we have these peel packs that are, you know, incredibly waste intensive and stuff that you don't necessarily think about on the day to day. It's always been done this way. I mean, fast forward to March, 20, 2020, you walk into the OR, like this seems a little bit odd. There's 10 boxes with 150 masks each. And there's people in New York that are, you know, that would kill for a mask. But policy, understanding what's going on at a legislative level, how can we be involved? And if you're not at least somewhat engaged and educated, it's easy to get skipped up, I think. And, you know, 
we have to advocate for ourselves. So I know it's tricky. I mean, I'm, you know, I actually think it's really wonderful. Manoj has, has really taken a keen interest in some of these social responsibilities that you're organizing a meeting out here in San Diego over MLK weekend, just to really get engaged people together to brainstorm, get some ideas. You know, there's wonderful things like international volunteers in urology. There's, you know, the AUA kind of policy advocacy summit. And, um, you know, we send a couple of residents there every year. But it sounds like the Office of Education is at least dipping a toe into some of these non-clinical areas. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a fair, it's a fair statement. You know, it, it's almost like drinking from the fire hydrant, right? I mean, it, there, there's so many, when you kind of look at non-clinical urology and all the things that you highlighted that impact us, right? And profession stewards of the environment, stewards of ourselves, we need to be facile or at least have an understanding of it. Now, I think the challenging thing is there are so many different things out there. And so my belief is that it's hard to do everything well and you don't want to do everything poorly. And so I would say probably the two areas this past year, we've tried to do a much better job in sort of developing a framework and programming is a little bit in the realm of you know, business and leadership and, and how to cultivate good clinicians into good leaders because those are two, those are not necessarily synonymous and it's a different skill set. It's a different acquired skill set wholly. And then I think a lot in the realm of diversity, equity and inclusion and trying to do a better job with how do we create a more inclusive environment with regards to our profession, which, you know, has historically been, you know, male, Caucasian male dominated. And now the demographic is changing, but I think we need to, you know, whether that's from an educational perspective or from an organizational perspective, have to be more conscious in doing that. And the last thing I would say is, you know, it is really great to have passionate champions in different areas. So I would be the first to say advocacy makes me uncomfortable. Like I don't know how to navigate that well. And I've gone to the Jack or the old Jack meeting. And, you know, walking into congressperson's offices and, and having my talking points, that gets my stomach churning more than, you know, any kind of surgical case. But I love the fact that there are people in our field that do this and do this well and can educate those of us that don't do it well on why it's important and why, you know, we need to, you know, be at the table. Cause if we're not at the table, you know, we're on the table. It's essentially what it comes down to. Yeah, I love it. You know, I kind of feel the same way. That's all I'm smiling here. But, you know, I've got a co-chief, Casey Seidman, that's just grabbed the bull by the horns for DEI and, and women's initiatives. And it's just, it's amazing. And, you know, sometimes I read the information out there coming from these like super thoughtful, strong people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I would never say that, but I'm glad somebody is. So, well, you know, Jay, I, I think what you've been able to do at the educational level has you know, especially with the pandemic, it's, you know, it's a major, major lift. And it's not just some, you know, figurehead there. This is real life nuts and bolts, how, how our community is getting educated and staying educated. And, you know, it's really been, been something else. And, you know, just like with anything, there's always opportunities and challenges. But as, as we come on an hour and if I could, I could go on any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership, you know, just in general, you know, lessons learned, things to do, do's and don'ts. What, what are your kind of parting thoughts? I would say that ideas are always great. 
and I love to hear ideas. And some of the the changes that we are doing and that I'm doing are because people come forward with ideas. And I always tell people, if you have thoughts, you have ideas, you have ways that you think that education could be better. I always say there's such thing as a bad idea. Doesn't mean it can be done every time, but it's not a bad idea. So I, I love I love ideas and I would love to take some of the credit, but honestly, most of the credit for a lot of the things we're doing is because people have come with ideas and and it's just implementing these ideas. So that would be my first point to everybody, which is if you have a good idea, please let me know, let us know, because I think good ideas are what pushes us forward. I think that the second thing I would say is that I think the future is really being more savvy with how we teach and educate. And we just have to recognize the way our residents learn isn't how we learned and the way the next generation of residents learn is not the way that our current residents are learning. And so I think we just have to be open and receptive to that changing landscape. And, and I think technology is going to drive a lot of that. And I think if you're not technologically in tune, um, I hate to say it, but I think you're going to probably get left behind at the end of the day. Yeah, I think those are perfect, actually. You know, when you feel like the good old days were the only ways to do it, I think you become obsolete. And, you know, I would say that you and I kind of had one foot in and one foot on the other side of various approaches to training where we weren't residents that lived in the hospital like residents of the 1940s and 50s, but it was different. You know, the, the work weeks were long, the expectations were different, wellness, burnout, those weren't issues. So just keeping a finger on the pulse with how people are learning, how work is integrated into one's life, maybe as a part of their life and not their whole life is critical. And then just keeping up with what's going on so we can bring that to ourselves and, and to the trainees. I love it. Well, Jay, you know, again, thank you for your time. Thanks for all the work, you know, kind of officially and unofficially to really keep urology at the forefront. Thank you so much for having me and always uh, very proud of everything you've accomplished. And, and it's always my pleasure to see you, even if it's virtually, but certainly uh, next time in person is even better. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.